Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pilgrim Devotion. My name is Michael Howard. I'm the senior pastor of Seaford Baptist Church. I am the host of this podcast. This is a podcast for anyone inside or outside of Seaford Baptist Church who's living the pilgrim life, representing the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man. I'm so glad to be back with another episode this week, and it's an exciting week for us at Seaford Baptist. I was thinking about how I really haven't talked that much about the church on the podcast. I think I assume that if you're listening, you go to the church, or you used to go to the church, or you know me in some way, so you know about the church, but I probably shouldn't assume that. Uh, Seaford Baptist Church is a church that I have been a pastor at now for, well, about 12 years, amazingly. It'll be 12 years in October. And this church is located in Seaford, Virginia, surprise, surprise, which is a suburb of Yorktown, Virginia, here on the peninsula in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. We are a part of the historic triangle. Like this morning, I went to Yorktown Beach and spent some time with the Lord down there, which I'm growing to love. I can't believe I've waited a dozen years of living here to learn that I should be going down to Yorktown Beach in the morning on the regular to spend time with the Lord. It is amazing down there. But yeah, it's 10 minutes from our church. That's how close we are to, uh, to, to historic Yorktown and, and, and just how close we are to, you know, that historic triangle and, and the heart of, of all of that American history here in, in the state of Virginia, which I love. I'm a Virginia boy, and I certainly love this area. So that's where we are, and we're having vacation Bible school this week. So it's a really, really great week for us here at Seaford Baptist, and if you happen to be listening to this, the actual week of its recording, I'll be putting this out later today, July 18th, 2023, um, well, you can you can pray for us, please. You can pray for fruit from this. Frankly, if, whenever you're listening to this, pray for fruit from this VBS, because I, I am under the, the belief uh, that while you may see immediate fruit from VBS, I think most of the fruit that comes from doing vacation Bible schools uh, it tends to bear out down the road with kids uh, and their families. And that was certainly the story for my own family, but that's a, that's another podcast for another time. Uh, for today, I just want to talk about what's going on with me. Uh, I think it's a good week to talk about it. Uh, this is VBS week. I it's okay. I, I'm not overly burdened during VBS week in the sense that our children's director is amazing, by the way, here. Our, our children's director, Kimberly Milner, she's the best. She's burdened this week, trust me. Plenty of work for her. But for me as the senior pastor, I'm the worship leader during VBS, and there's the prep for that. But I, I have 10 to 12 hours of work that I am normally doing for a midweek sermon that I'm not doing this week. So it's no problem for me to record a podcast. However, uh, it's still a busy week at the church, and I didn't have time to do a ton of prep work. So I thought, well, let me talk from the heart about what's been going on with me, because I have had people approach me, and they've asked. They're like, hey, I feel like you're preaching has evolved a bit in the last six months or been different or you've been quoting a lot of different people that you didn't used to quote in the past. Some of them seem to be dead for a long time. What's up with that? You know, so I wanted to run you through the path that I feel like the Lord has had me on, the waters he's had me swimming in, and where I feel like I have been mining, like the the, the veins I've been mining from over the last year and, and how that developed. So, uh, that's what I want to do today. Sorry, I took a drink of water. I feel like I'm on the verge of a cough. I don't want to cough on the podcast. That requires me to drink water, which also takes time. It feels better than a cough. It's really a conundrum. 
I may cough. There's no promises. So <laughs> here we go. Um, let's start with last summer, okay? Last summer, I was a part of a book club that I'm no longer a part of. I was kicked out. No, that's not true. Uh, I left because I really didn't have the time to continue to be a part of it. But I was a part of it, uh, and it was a bunch of kind of Christian leaders, entrepreneurs uh, in the area in the penin- on the peninsula, and I was a part of that book club, and we were trying to decide what we were going to read next. And it was actually the last book I think I read of this book club. I was a part of it for like three years. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. But um, joining up with the Pillar Network and really trying to get in with those brothers and, and, and establish strong friendships with other pastors in the area was something I felt like I needed to prioritize. So I had to trade off time somewhere. And the guys in that book club totally understood that. So uh, I think the last thing I did with them was... We read the biography of William Tyndale, and the reason we did that, the one written by Stephen Lawson, the reason we did that is because this guy Paul Klug in the book club has this conviction, and and I wanted to mention this. When I did the Tyndale sermon on July 2nd, I was so, I got done with it, and I was so bummed I didn't mention Paul. Paul, he shares this, this conviction as we're talking about, you know, what we should study. He's like, I think every English-speaking Christian should know where their Bible came from and should know what William Tyndale sacrificed in order to put that Bible in their hands. Well, how can you argue with that? You know, so we were like, okay, so what should we do? And he said, we should read Stephen Lawson's biography of William Tyndale, which all the books I'm going to mention today, we will put in the show notes. I don't know if I have time to put the Amazon links in there. That would be quite a bit of work, but uh, we will put the names of the books and you can go and find the cheapest place to buy them. So we read Lawson's biography of Tyndale at Paul's behest and, and Paul was right to have us do that, man. It it just floored me. I loved it so much, and uh, and and so really for the last year, I found myself thinking about, talking about, reading about William Tyndale a lot. That all came out in that July second sermon. That was kind of the culmination of all of that. And I was I, I kind of put William Tyndale aside after that and said and said I feel like I've spent a year with this brother, and I'll see him in heaven now. You know, um, so thankful for him. And I love William Tyndale. So read that biography. Then I bought the book, The Reformed Pastor, because it was written by this guy, Richard Baxter, in 1656. I didn't know a ton about it. And I knew it was something I hadn't read that I should read, that it was old. And I had gotten done with Tyndale, and I love that. So I bought The Reformed Pastor because this new, updated and abridged version by Tim Cooper put out by Crossway had come out. And I was like, oh, this looks so pretty. And and I just read that that book about Tyndale, and I want some more. I want some more history and some more old stuff. So I got the Reformed Pastor. Didn't have time to read it. Christmas rolls around. I need to read. I don't pick up the book that I, I have purchased, the Reformed Pastor, which I should. Which I any any pastor who loves books has a stack of books that he's meaning to get to, right? So I don't go to the stack that I'm meaning to get to. Christmas rolls around. That's a time where I tend to have a lot more time to read. And I'm like, I want a book to read. And I want something new. And I want something that will kind of kind of in the vein of Tyndale. So I look at a bunch of biographies. And it's like, well, where do I start? I mean, Stephen Lawson, who wrote the Tyndale biography, he's got a biography about Martin Lloyd-Jones, about Jonathan Edwards, about John Calvin, about Martin Luther. It's like, where do I start There's so many biographies about so many great Christian men and women from church history written by so many great Christian men and women that it's overwhelming. 
So I, I start searching around, and I see that on many blogs, this one book keeps coming up. The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. And I'm like, okay, this seems like the best one. It is being described as a rip-roaring read. It's, 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 uh, it's an engaging book. And I'm like, I've never really read a church history book that put its hooks in me. I mean, that deeply where I was engaged on that level where I couldn't stop turning the pages. I read The Story of Christianity by Justo L. Gonzalez when I was in seminary. I had to do that. Uh, it's good. It's very good. I recommend it. Uh, but it's not, I wouldn't call it a rip-roaring read, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you. Um, so I get The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves, and I start reading it, and I can't, I can't stop. It's so good. I, I'm finding myself trying to read slowly because I don't want it to stop too quickly. I, I tell everybody about it. I get a few people to start reading this book right along with me, and it's it's just the best. I, I, I really, like, before you do anything else that I could commend to you in this podcast, you need to read The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. It will run you through about 450 years of Christian history. It will make you laugh. It will make you cry. It will make you want to run through a brick wall for Jesus. It will make you want to get down on your knees and pray. It will make you want to go back 400 years ago and hug a brother. It will make you want to get to heaven. I love this book, and it is so good. And so I just want to encourage you to read The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. It is about the Reformation. It's about the Protestant Reformation. Like I said, it runs you, I think, from about 1300, maybe even a little before, up to, I think, about 1750, maybe even a little further. So I read that, I get done with that, and I'm like, my goodness. I Actually, I think before I even got done, I had picked up the Reformed Pastor and started to read that. Because I, I was so fired up about what I was reading, I was like, okay, well, I've got this book written by Richard Baxter, 1656. He's talking about Baxter in the book, because he starts going into the Puritans. And I'm like, all right, let me read it. So I pick up the Reformed Pastor by... Richard Baxter, and, and I start to uh, read it, and, and I am blown away by what I am seeing there in this book. He is talking about pastoral ministry in a way that I have longed to hear somebody talk about it, and he's doing it in 1656. I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> I, I'm waiting for somebody to write this book in 2023. It was already written in 1656. So it's blowing my mind as I'm reading The Unquenchable Flame, and I'm realizing that that I really am barren when it comes to historical anchors, understanding where my theology has come from, where my denomination has come from, and I, I, I feel so ignorant. And I'm like, I, I, I suddenly feel like I discover this vein that I need to mine from, this Puritan vein that I need to mine from, this church history vein that I need to mine from. And I know that you're probably thinking, you've been the pastor of this church for 12 years. You went to seminary. Why now? Uh, I think that's a, a fair question. And I'm not trying to make excuses here. And I also don't want it to come off like I'm not grateful for my seminary experience because my mother and my father worked hard to put me through seminary. I didn't pay for seminary. I, I paid for part of my undergrad. I didn't pay for any of my seminary. That was paid for by Christians who gave money to get people like me scholarships. And that was paid for my mother and my father, especially my dad who worked a lot of overtime with his hands and blue-collar work. His hands still bear the scars and marks. And... 
And so I'm grateful for my seminary education. That being said, there are those things you go back in life and you're like, look, I trust the sovereign plan of God and what he caused or he allowed. But if I could go back and do things differently, I might make some changes. Well, where I went to seminary is the thing I would change. I went to Liberty Baptist Theological, which now is, I think, the Rawlings School of Divinity. I really wish I'd gone to just, you know, probably Southeastern or the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville or Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. If I were to go back to school right now, I would go to one of those schools, Lord willing. And I, when I went to Liberty, I just wasn't exposed to this stuff, okay, for whatever reason. Was it the classes I took or the professors I had or the flavor of the school? I, I don't know. But when I talk to brothers who are 38 and pastoring or 58 and pastoring who went to one of those schools, they're like, yeah, I read the Bruce Reed in my, my pastoral theology class. And I'm like, oh, really? I didn't read that. I wasn't asked to read that. I didn't I wasn't asked to read anything by anybody who wasn't alive anymore. I think pretty much everything I read in seminary was by people who were living outside of the most important book I read in seminary, which was... Um, Preachers and Preaching by, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. So, outside of that, uh, man, I think everything that they had me read in, in seminary was was pretty much by guys that were living, and a lot of it was by men that were at the seminary and working or, or who were attached to liberty. So, yeah, yeah, I, I felt, I suddenly realized that I was shallow in this area, and I need water in the pool, and there's a lot of water to put in that pool. And I was like, all right, let's put the hoses in here. So I got the Reeves book feeding me, putting water in from one direction. I've got the Reformed pastor putting it in from the other direction. Now I want to stop right here and talk about who these Puritans are before I go any further on the books that I've read and what I've learned from these books, okay? Let's go a little history here because I, I want you to know who these men are. King Henry breaks ties with Rome, if you remember from the Tyndale sermon on July 2nd. King Henry breaks ties with Rome in March of 1534, and he does this so he can uh, annul his marriage and he can have a new marriage, and he wants that marriage uh, to be accepted and to be right, and he will not have it condemned by the church. So he breaks and he says, well, now England will have its own church and I will be the head of that church. And... King Henry is excommunicated from uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church in 1538, which means England is now up for grabs. It's, it's really neither Protestant nor Catholic because Henry is not some passionate Protestant reformer, not in any way. Uh, he just happens, God sovereignly used Henry to throw England up for grabs. It was Henry's flesh that really made him want to start the Church of England, right? But in beginning the Church of England, it, it, it opens England up to be this hotbed for the Protestant Reformation. When Edward's son takes the throne in 1547, at age nine, he's an ardent Protestant. He, is, he has been raised to be a Protestant. So he is a fired up Protestant at nine years old, which is the, it's just kind of crazy because that's the age of my middle son, who is not fired up about I mean, he, he's, he's, he's growing up a Protestant, okay? But I would not say he's, he's sitting at home, um, you know, pounding uh, the dinner table about the glories of justification by faith alone. Um, he, he is talking about Fortnite, I must confess. So at age nine, Edward is this fired up Protestant, and that just takes England hard in the Protestant direction, which is 
you know, for a guy like me, and I think for a lot of you listening, really great. But then in 1553, he dies suddenly, and his Catholic half-sister Mary takes the throne, and she is not raised with him. And she is not Protestant. She is very Catholic and anti-Protestant. She sets England back 20 years. She goes the other way, and she is killing Protestants. It's Bloody Mary. uh, Elizabeth comes to the throne after that in 1558. She's different than Mary. Elizabeth reigns till 1603 and has this vision for a united Protestant England. But it's a very like peculiar version of Protestantism where she's, again, not an ardent reformer. She's more using Protestant as this political tool to unify. And, and it's not reformed enough for a lot. Because for a reformer, you're always wanting to be reforming, right? Understand that Reformation is just about getting back to the Bible. It's about reforming the church, reforming ourselves, to get back to what the Bible says and away from the traditions of man in so much as, as we can, and, and to just be Bible people. And so, the people who were Reformed, right, the Reformers, they're in England going, no, 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 no. This, this, this version of Protestantism that Elizabeth's trying to unify us with, it's too Catholic in its worship, it's too Catholic in its understanding of justification, it's too Catholic in its polity, like we've got to be always Reforming. They long for James to come to the throne, and James does in 1603. He's a Calvinist. He's Presbyterian in his view of the church, but he's still a disappointment. And so a lot of separatists, they head off for the new world. In particular, they don't care for his Bible. It's, a, it's, it's got too much of a Catholic hand in it, the King James Bible, they felt like. And so they head with the Geneva Bible. Uh, the, the, the Bible of the Protestant Reformation, off to the New World in 1620. Charles I takes the throne in 1625. He reigns to 1649. He is anti-Puritan. Uh, Civil War breaks out. Uh, during this time, the, West, uh, the Westminster Confession is, is, um, is formed and it is established. And they end up cutting off the king's head. Like the, the the Puritan army under Oliver Cromwell wins the Civil War and they cut off Charles's head. And Oliver Cromwell is the Lord Protector and England is a commonwealth for 10 years. And then Charles II takes the throne and they have a king again and he is just terrible. And he rules for 25 years from 1660 to 1685. He is so anti-Puritan that in 1662, he has 2,000 Puritans ejected from their pulpits. I just bought a book uh, called The Last Sermons of the Great Ejection. And it's just the sermons of like eight Puritans on the final Sundays that they had in their pulpits before they were kicked out. And when they're kicked out of their pulpits, I mean... They're not allowed to. They're they're not allowed to have any. They they just they just say there's not allowed to be any religious assemblies of more than five people that that occur outside of the Church of England. Period. Like you want to have a little Bible study, a little small group, that's fine. You're not having church outside of the Church of England. They send twenty thousand Puritans to prison during this time. They won't even let Puritan preachers live near cities because they won't let them get near the people they used to pastor. And they have no access to public education. They can't go to Oxford anymore. This is why Matthew Henry, he didn't get to go to Oxford the way John 
Owen um, got, you know, that great public education. Matthew Henry didn't. He was homeschooled because Matthew Henry's dad was a Puritan preacher and he was ejected. And so Matthew Henry was homeschooled in the woods. And this is really the death of Puritanism because once, once Puritanism is divorced from the academic world, well, the academic world is kind of controlling thought in England, and, uh, and and they go in a different direction, and Puritanism is this thing that kind of, I might say it becomes forgotten, but, I mean, the Puritans, they, they get buried outside the city. They won't even bury them inside the city. Uh, there's this graveyard in, uh, in England where they have all the Puritans buried. I mean, John Owen, John Bunyan, there's a bunch of them buried there. Uh, some, some of the graves, we don't even know who's in there. They just threw a bunch of bodies in there. They just keep throwing bodies, Puritan bodies in there, burying them outside the city. And uh, Jonathan Edwards is really looked at as like the last Puritan in a lot of ways from 1700 to 1758. And, of course, he's over here uh, in the colonies, in the New World. All in all, it's a 150-year movement. Uh, are they men and women without problems? No, they've got problems. The Puritans have problems. I mean, Jonathan Edwards, if you read like the things he wrote about uh, the transatlantic slave trade, it's not great. Okay, it's not great. Uh, George Whitfield, who's preaching very much, is is born out of Puritanism, and, and some might even call him a Puritan evangelist, one of the last Puritans. Uh, George Whitfield, uh, he did own slaves. Okay, so uh, those are things we can talk about on a different podcast. I'm not going to do it here. Uh, these these not all the Puritans own slaves. All right, uh, you could probably do some googling and find out who did and who didn't, and. And, and, and so these were not perfect men. I don't want to make it out like these heroes of the faith are perfect men in any way, any more than Noah or King David was a perfect man, any more than uh, Peter or the Apostle Paul was a perfect man. But all in all, it is a 150-year movement of spiritual giants. As Stephen Lawson says, they were redwoods. And the Baptist church is born from this movement. That's one of the reasons it's important that we understand Puritanism. Uh, Baptists came from the Puritans. You had John Smith and John Robinson, and they are basically Puritans who, in the early 1600s, decide that the Church of England is beyond reform, and so they go to Holland in 1607 and 1608, and they are chasing religious liberty. And there they accept believers' baptism. This guy, John Smith, he baptizes himself. Uh, and then he ends up joining up with the Mennonites who were like Anabaptists, and he adopts Arminian theology that, that God elects people by looking down through the halls of history and, and making his choice based on who would choose him, and that people uh, can resist saving grace and resist the Holy Spirit. And so not Calvinistic in his theology, embraces that Arminian theology, becomes a pacifist, and his church basically becomes absorbed by the waterlanders, uh, the, the Mennonites in the Netherlands, and they're rebaptized. But some of the people that were a part of John Smith's church, they're like, hey, we don't want to do that. And so uh, the men who led that group, his name was Thomas Helwes. And him and his followers, they reject this full Mennonite adoption. They return to England and they establish what is truly the first Baptist church, the mother of all uh, non-Calvinistic or general uh, Baptist churches. 
And then the Calvinistic or particular Baptist, they come out of this church, which we call the JLJ church because we don't really know what to call it. So we name it after the, the first letter of the last names of the, the men who pastored it. Uh, so the JLJ church was started by Henry Jacob. That's the first J in 1616. And we know that he met John Robinson, uh, one of those men that I talked about that along with uh, John Smith were saying, we're separating from the Church of England. And the JLJ Church, they continued on in the Church of England. They did not separate, but the doctrine uh, and, and the beliefs that become Baptist distinctives, they are starting to stir and rumble around in this church. John Lathrop, he takes over in 1622 after Henry Jacob leaves for Virginia, and during his tenure, infant baptism is questioned. He leaves for the New World due to Puritan persecution in 1634. And Henry Jesse takes over the church. Uh, Henry Jesse is a Puritan from Cambridge. He, he's like, we're not going to do any rituals that you can't find. in the, If you can't find it in the Bible, we're not doing it. It's a tradition of man. Out of his church, we think, comes John Spilsbury, counted as many as the first particular Baptist church planter. All this is born out of Puritan soil, like the, the general Baptists and what become the particular Baptists who come out of the JLJ church and John Spilsbury and William Kiffin and the guys who become the, um, the particular Baptists, uh, the, 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 the men who are uh, so important in helping form the doctrine of the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is a cornerstone uh, confession of faith for the Baptist denomination. It's all coming out of the Puritan soil. So that is why these are important men, important theologians, important pastors, important preachers. And I just started to discover that these are my spiritual grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-grandfathers. And, and brother or sister, they are yours as well. If you're listening to this, you're like, ho, oh, oh, ho, man, I'm not a Baptist. Don't put that on me. I, I'm, not one of the, I'm not a Baptist. Well, what are you? If you're an evangelical, then, uh, then you, you're not going to be able to run away from the Puritans and the fingerprints uh, that they've got on you. So... With that said, let me let me go back and talk a little bit more about the books that I have read. And looking at the time, I might have to split this up into two parts. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe not. But let me talk about the books that I've read. So I read The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter. When I got done with The Reformed Pastor, and by the way, I'm reading these books for the most part, other than I think two of them, uh, I'm reading these books during my devotional time. So I, I, in the mornings, I'm, I'm praying, singing, confessing, and then I'm reading the Bible. And when I get done with my Bible time, after I've meditated on the scriptures for a bit, I'm reading some Puritan. I, I'm, I'm read, the Puritans write in chunks, almost bullet points, little sections. Um, some of what you're reading with the Puritans are actual sermons, and so they you know, they're broken up the way sermons are, the way a sermon outline would be. So I think they lend themselves to devotional reading. That's not to say that the reading is always easy, because it is written a lot of times in, you know, weird sentence orders and, and, and just written in ways that we don't talk now, but it lends itself to devotional reading. So I'm reading The Reformed Pastor kind of in my devotional time, I get done with that, and I move to the bruised read by Richard Sibbs because so many 
uh, people that I talked to about the Puritans and about Richard Baxter were saying, well, you got to read The Bruised Reed. Michael Reeves in The Unquenchable Flame, talking a lot about Richard Sibbs and The Bruised Reed and how he's the gentle Puritan. And then Richard Baxter in The Reformed Pastor, he's saying how he recommends to people the writings of, uh, of Richard Sibbs. And so I pick up the Bruce Reed. I start reading that when I finish the Reformed Pastor, but I love Richard Baxter so much because he's the soul doctor and he just gets right down into the the, the nooks and the crannies and, 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 and he really deals with the details of the soul, the human soul. And why does your heart feel this way? And he's very practical. And so I was like, I want more Baxter. So while I'm reading the Bruised Reed, uh, I'm also reading The Cure of Depression and Excessive Sorrow by Baxter and Anger Management by Baxter. So I read those two, not in my quiet time, just kind of read them. And those are both really short. The Cure of Depression and Excessive Sorrow is only 93 pages long. Anger Management, which I have gone through on this podcast, is... 41 pages long, and that book is only about the size of the palm of my hand. So I read those, all right? What do I do now? Well, after getting done with anger management, I still found myself needing help with anger, and and really my emotions, and just wanting to be, uh, just not to be able to be provoked so easily in any way. And I was listening to the podcast Doctrine and Devotion, and this guy Joe Thorne said he was an angry little man till he read The Quest for Meekness and the Quietness of Spirit by Matthew Henry. And so I picked that up, and I decided to read that. That was the next one. Uh, Probably the most uh, important book I've read for my character in my life, and it did so much to change me and my character as I was reading it, and it's a book that I will absolutely return to to read again, Lord willing, in the future. So, so good. Uh, The Quest for Meekness and the Quietness of Spirit by Matthew Henry. As I am reading that, I pick up a book by Joel Beakey and our good friend Michael Reeves called Following God Fully, an Introduction to the Puritans. I just kind of read through that in the margins in my own time. Uh, That book is about 150 pages, very short chapters, two to three pages each. It, uh, if you want to just have an intro to the Puritans, it's a great book for you. It talks about who they were, uh, what they believed, little biographies on important Puritans, and just goes over their basic beliefs, uh, the, the overall basic beliefs of the Puritans on different doctrines, uh, things like evangelism, raising families, marriage, um, preaching, the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, uh, all of those different things. And so I was reading that as I was going through the Matthew Henry book, just kind of reading that on the side. Finishing up Matthew Henry, I moved to The Heart of Christ, uh, The Heart of Christ by Thomas Goodwin. Uh, got, did that on the recommendation of my good friend Jeff Beard. That is a book about what Jesus is like now at the right hand of the Father, like right now. And That was unlike anything I think that I had ever read, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, Really challenged my view of Jesus in in a good way and and, and stretched it in a good way. And then uh, finishing up, really following God fully in the unquenchable flame, having those out of the way, I wanted more history. uh, And so I got The Baptist Story, which is by Michael Haken, 
I'm going to get some name names wrong here. I think it's Anthony Finn and Nathan Shute, but definitely by Michael Haken. And those three brothers have just written, it's basically a Baptist history textbook uh, called uh, The Baptist Story. That's what it's called, From English Sect to Global Movement. Uh, that's a really, really good book. It's not as engaging as The Unquenchable Flame, but um, I'm up into the 1800s now. It starts, obviously, uh, all the way back in the, the 1500s, and it just walks you through Baptist history, and it will really, really warm your heart to, to see, again, what our brothers and sisters before us have gone through and the shoulders that we stand on. Uh, right now, I am currently reading The Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan, John Bunyan. Prayer by John Bunyan is the book I'm reading in my devotional time. It is so good, but I'm not ready to talk about it. Um, and then I'm reading Samuel Rutherford's letters, which are very, very easy to read uh, devotionally. You can just keep those around and just read them when you have five minutes here and there. So those are the books I'm working through now from a Puritan aspect. So yeah, that's that's the waters I've been swimming in. I'm going to stop here and I'm going to start a part two for this podcast that will release uh, one day from now. So we're going to release this today, July 18th. Part two will come out tomorrow, July 19th, Lord willing. So I'm going to stop the podcast here. We'll come back with part two where I will talk about what I have learned from the Puritans thus far, why I think you should jump into them, and uh, what you might find there. So thanks so much uh, for joining us. Before I go, even though we are going to have a part two, I still want to ask you now. Really stop and think. How's your soul doing? Do you need some more church history? Do you feel like you're just kind of a balloon floating out there doing Christian things? And you're like, why do I do these things? Is Are these things even in the Bible? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, you might need some church history. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that outside of doctrine and theology itself, church history is the most important thing that you should be learning. So, uh, you might need to go lead, uh, learn learn yourself some church history. So I wanted to encourage you to do that uh, if you need to do that. But how is your soul right now? How are you doing? How is God's grace at work in your life? And how do you uh, want God's grace to be at work in your life in ways that it's not right now? And when I say that, that is more about how we need to change, less about what God needs to do, right? Where are you not surrendered that you need to be surrendered? So... Consider those things, and if you need a pastor, please reach out to us at connect at seafordbaptist.com, and we would be happy to, uh, to be able to talk to you and to be able to provide some pastoral care to you or to point you toward pastoral care. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you back here for part two tomorrow.